just gotta like go for it, get out of your comfort zone sometimes. And just do the shit that you know if you look back 10 years from that point. And uh, if you hadn't done it, you would you would regret it. Just do just do that thing. What's up, guys? Welcome to the podcast. This episode is brought to you by FitBod, the number one fitness app out there. I seriously love this app. You guys have heard me talk about it so many times, episode after episode. They have been a huge supporter of the podcast. This little smart app really gets to know you really well. So what FitBod does is it lets you put in exactly the type of workouts you want like to do. If you like to do push workouts, pull workouts, upper body only, lower body only. It takes into account what equipment is available to you. So if you guys have a home gym like me, I have limited amount of equipment versus like a big commercial gym. So I put in exactly different equipment that I have available to me. And you guys might have like, let's say dumbbells and a medicine ball. Well, you can put that in the app and it'll give you workouts based on just dumbbells and medicine balls. Or if you're in a bigger gym, of course, you'll have plenty of more options. And based off of all that information, it'll generate a workout for you. Now, the cool thing is, is that FitBod takes into account your muscle fatigue. So let's say you did a really tough leg day tomorrow, it's not going to give you leg day again, it's going to give you an upper body workout. Or let's say you did upper body, but you did a chest workout, you didn't really work out your back that much, it knows everything. So it's not gonna give you chest day the next day, it'll give you either a leg day or a back day. And this has been a game changer for me in terms of my workouts and it's cool that it has a little log feature which allows me to log my workouts and I also link it to Strava and Apple Health and it shows how many calories I've burned in my Apple Health And I'm also able to see the amount of calories that I'm taking in from my other nutrition apps. And having all that information at my fingertips, it is revolutionary. I mean, it is so clear and objective on how I am doing and whether I'm moving towards my goals or away from them. So I can't recommend this app enough. If you guys are into fitness, if you guys want to achieve your fitness goals in 2020 and beyond, of course, because this is not some fad. This is a lifestyle. You want to stay active and and be fit all year round. Highly recommend downloading this app. Give it a try. FitBod is offering a free trial to you guys. If you go to fitbod.me slash bananiac and when you sign up to their membership, they're going to knock off 25% to you guys. But this offer is only for the listeners of This Is Banana. So go to fitbod.me slash Bananiac to receive 25% off when you sign up. And big thanks to FitBot for supporting this podcast from almost the very beginning 
when this podcast took off. They have been a huge supporter and have allowed me to bring all these episodes to you guys. So definitely support them. And if you guys want to learn about other ways you can support this podcast, just head over to Bananiac.com. At the very top, I have an Amazon banner. Do all your Amazon shopping and it won't charge you anything more. However, Amazon will kick back a small percentage to the podcast. So if you guys are doing some holiday shopping, definitely consider using that Amazon banner. And up there, I also have an app called Robinhood. Now, if you don't know what this app is, basically it allows you to invest into companies that you believe in and that you want to support. So it allows you to buy stocks in companies like Amazon, for example, or Apple, Microsoft, even Beyond Meat. And I've been using it for the past year. I actually started using it when Beyond Meat went public and I've had a lot of great success on it. I mean, why have my money sit in a bank account where it's not moving, it's not growing, while I can be investing it in companies that I believe in and my money will grow. And the cool thing is if you guys click on the Robinhood banner on Bananiac.com, you will receive a free stock in a random company. So it could be Apple, it could be Ford, it could be whatever. We don't know. It's random. So if you're not investing your money, download Robinhood, get the free stock, and look at all the different companies that you can invest in. That way you can have your money grow while you sleep. I think that sounds like a pretty good deal to me, wouldn't you say? So today's guest, a very, very special guest. I had so much nostalgia creating this episode. I have Adam Russell here with me, the bassist of the band called Story of the Year. You guys might know the band from their famous song, Until the Day I Die, which came out back in 2003. It is my favorite band. I literally have goosebumps recording this audio right now. I've been listening to them since I was 12 years old. I can't tell you the amount of shows that I've been to of Story of the Year. They put on the sickest, most insane rock and roll shows that you've ever seen before. They do guitar spins. They do tornado kicks. They do backflips. They jump around, come to the crowd. Their music is amazing. Their lyrics connect with you on a personal level. They write political songs and they're super cool dudes, very down to earth, awesome humans. And if you ever have a chance to go to one of their shows, do not hesitate, especially because they're not touring as much as they used to now. But Adam Russell, he is, like I said, the basis of this Story of the Year band. He's also a vegan and I've chatted with him back in 2013 when this YouTube channel well, I, I should say I have a YouTube channel. So if you guys just listen to this podcast, my YouTube channel is also Bananiac. I've been doing this since 2013. And Adam was one of the first interviews that I had recorded, I had published. I mean, it just goes to show you what a cool dude he was. A fan comes up to him and it's like, dude, you want to record a quick interview about veganism? He's like, sure, without even considering the amount of subs that I had back then. I think I must have had under 1,000 in uh to think that I'm over 70,000, insane by the way. So yeah, I did have Adam on the YouTube channel back in the day, but it was kind of no noisy. It was at Warp Tour while bands were playing. So the audio wasn't great on that. So I wanted to have him back on the show. I wanted to do it in long format. And I wanted to chat with him about you know what it's like to be vegan, especially while touring on a very successful band. I mean, they toured non-stop for I want to say they, they played like 300 shows non-stop 
I think is what he said. So I talked to him about that and I asked him about what made him go vegan in the first place. I asked him about some of the success that the band experienced, especially early on working with John Feldman from Goldfinger, touring with very successful bands such as P.O.D., Hoobastank, Linkin Park, and Berlin. I asked him about the documentary that he's made, Who Killed or Saved the Music Industry, that he created with a guitarist from Story of the Year. And that documentary is about the whole shift in music, how people are illegally downloading music, and how that is affecting the artists that created in the first place. And if you're listening to this and you buy music with your own dollars, give yourself a little pat on the back because that supports the artists. That keeps them going and that is a vote for the artists that you believe in. Also talk about some of the struggles that the band went through, some of the hustle, the real hustle that normally isn't covered. What you guys see is the shiny stuff and the really clean stuff and how successful somebody is, but I wanted to go into some of the struggles that the band experience, which to me, I think that is more inspiring than anything else. I want to know how you got to where you are today. I want to know what you went through. So I asked him about some of that and about some other really cool topics too. So I was really honored, really humbled to have Adam on the show. And so I'm going to stop talking now, but I should mention if you guys go to the show notes on bananiac.com slash podcasts, You'll find the show notes of this episode and I've listed a bunch of their music videos on there so you guys could have a listen if you've never heard of them before. Definitely recommend giving them a listen because if you like the work that I do, the things that I talk about on the podcast and the YouTube channel, I think you guys are going to connect with a lot of their lyrics and their music. So without further ado, here is Adam the Skull from Story of the Year. All right, Technology, cool, we did it. Yeah. Sweet, you ready to roll? Ready to roll. All right, so what's up, man? Oh, you know, living the dream. Yeah. The rig. Welcome to This Is Bananas. That's a great name, dude. Do you think Gwen Stefani would be proud? Yeah, I hope so. I Does ho- she know about it? I, I would like to think that she would, uh, but I really hope that she doesn't sue me either. So <laughs> I guess we'll wait and see. I mean, the uh, podcast isn't called The Shit Is Bananas, that's so true. you're like technically not in breach that's of copyright true. law. Keeping it PG-13, you know? <laughs> cool, man. Uh, I've got Adam Russell here on the podcast. He's from a, uh, a band that's called Story of the Year, which I've been listening to since I was freaking 12 years old, 28 yeah. now for a reference there. Um, and we have a lot in common. You're vegan, you're into tech, you're into Star Wars, you're into toilets, apparently. So I figured yeah. I'd have you on the show, man. Thanks for coming on, dude. Yeah, man, for sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, it, as of this day that we're recording this episode, it is the day before Thanksgiving. I was just wondering, uh, what are you going to be having tomorrow? We, uh, so the awesome thing is, uh, my wife and most of her, well, my wife and I are vegan. Her siblings are damn near vegan, all vegetarian. So three of them and their significant others so it's gonna be like a full-blown vegan Thanksgiving, pretty much. And you're my dogs. Yeah, don't worry, dude. I have two. They'll probably go off any minute now. <laughs> they rage. So, uh, yeah, the the only ones that aren't gonna be vegan will be my wife's parents and her her in-laws. But we'll have, uh, you know, we're making vegan mashed potatoes, uh, vegan stuffing. We'll have a couple vegan roasts. I think we have a Gardein one, and Trader Joe's makes another one that we'll have. Um, so 
lots of good stuff. I usually do like green bean casserole as well. Like hello, like, you know, Midwest, like nasty <laughs> comfort food, you know, but, uh, skipping that this year, just, you know, for the sake of simplicity. Yeah, for sure. But, but I mean, you've named the basics, mashed potatoes. Are you doing like any, like, uh, like tofurkey or like turkey, vegan turkey type thing? Yeah. So the two roasts that we're doing are, are like turkey style, like the garden roast. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's the best one, dude. Yeah, dude. It's so good. The thing that really sucks though, is I assume, you know, about the shit that went down with Missouri law and the packaging of, of things with meaty names. Did you hear about this? Uh, maybe if it's what you're ref- referring to, is it like where they can't like call oat milk milk anymore and stuff like that? Right. Yeah. Anything like that. So that shit actually passed in Missouri, which is insane uh, for like reasons that we could talk about forever. So Tofurky having, you know, all of their stuff like printed at any given moment, ready to package like any company does that ships out thousands of uh, upon thousands of packages every day. Can't just turn on a dime and change all their packaging to meet these now insane restrictions for one state. So it's really hard to get Tofurky anything aside from the slices. So because they, they say very like bold and simply plant-based slices, you know, turkey style or something. You know what I mean? It's it's unambiguous in that sense. Not that anything else is ambiguous, really. Uh, but we passed this dumbass law here, so it's like we have to go across state lines to get tofurkey, like, you know, it's like we're getting an abortion or buying drugs or something. Right. You know, we just want to get a, a roast for the damn Thanksgiving. Yeah. That's where we're at. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. And I've had that conversation with before with people but like i always try to turn it to the bright side because look what's happening like you got like these big big billion dollar industries like like going against vegan companies which are much smaller but they don't want them to call them meat or milk because that's a threat you know and that's that's a sign that that we're making a dent in that industry which i think it's a good thing in a way but yeah it's messed up that that they can't call it you know turkey anymore or whatever and then it's turning these companies and like you said it's already packaged ready to go and now what like the company has to like relabel it and and right yeah it's a whole thing um but that's super cool man uh so your wife your uh and wife's family is all vegan um were you guys vegan when you met or so she was vegetarian and of course like an animal lover and vegan sympathetic and just fully about it but at that point, having grown up in a house where her being vegetarian was like just not something that her parents were about, you know, uh, they really kind of fought it a lot. So she she was like um, she was 20 when we met. We were friends long before we were married. Um, and right away, I was like, you know, you, you're probably vegan, even though like you're not like literally vegan day to day. Like she's like, yeah, I just, I don't necessarily know like the brands to buy or what to make, or it's really expensive. She was in college at the time. Yeah. So, um, over the years we kind of like, you know, I kind of shared some recipes and different things with her and different brands. And then once we got together and then got married and all, all of that unfolded, we were of course making meals together all the time. And we just, we got 
really good at at kind of uh, finding some things, and then she's like amazing with um, you know finding all the stuff that we love like on sale at the right time to buy a bunch of it and make it all affordable and that kind of stuff. As it's uh, you know like you said, smaller companies, so you don't have that scale to make everything quite as cheap all the time. But uh, that was a long way of saying yes, she was vegetarian and then became vegan. No, it's all good. It's all good. I appreciate that. Um, very cool. So, how long have you been vegan for? It has been. Uh, it will be 17 years in, like, after the beginning of the year, I guess. Wow. That's a yeah. long time, dude. Yeah. Um, I'm old. I've aged. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember back in 2013, like, when I was first starting off this channel, back in Warp Tour, when, uh, when Story of the Year was there, we did a little meetup and interview, and we were chatting uh about how you went vegan i think you said john feldman of goldfinger had a big influence on you at the time for yeah. even going vegan can you talk a little bit about like some of the reasons and some of the stuff you saw of how, you know the reasons why you went vegan yeah for sure um so we we started touring with goldfinger prior to being even called story of the year before we were even signed um so i and from seeing goldfinger before i knew that John was vegan and there was a lot of animal rights um, information at the show, booths and things like that. So I kind of had an idea of it, but I was, you know, like most people just kind of in denial about it or kind of put off by it, by the realities that I kind of didn't want to face. You right. know, growing up, growing up, actually, I grew up hunting and fishing, you know, so I had a little bit of additional or different perspective compared to probably the average person. But nonetheless, I knew it was there and I kind of fought it. But then when we were in the studio and we kind of you know, we had become friends and we kind of had that better rapport and he was, um, offering vegan food all the time for us. We'd go out to eat as a band and he would, if we were going to eat vegan, he would pay for it. Um, so I got a taste for some vegan stuff and I was always kind of open to eating anything as well. So that I think I was kind of a, a good candidate on that level. And, um, Yet I still kind of had a little pushback. I was already vegetarian, actually, at that point, because I had I had worked in food service like my whole life. And at some point, I just became kind of grossed out. Was it like lunch meat and stuff like that? Like, I mean, it was it was everything I worked. So I worked at um, Subway. I worked at KFC. I worked at this Italian like pizza place in St. Louis called um, Emo's, like St. Louis style pizza. St. Louis style pizza is gross for the record. <laughs> at least that's what I've heard. <laughs> Yeah, people love it here, but I think it's nasty. Uh, <laughs> but we um, we had sandwiches and um, pasta and all kinds of other stuff. So I was like handling all kinds of food all the time. And it being like a more traditional kind of ingredients vibe rather than like a chain, the sausage came in like this big, lumpy, nasty bag where you could see all the fat and the tendons and pieces of fucking eyeballs and stuff. Yeah. And it was just so gross. So handling that and then cutting like the roast beef that was a legit roast with like blood and fat in the bag and not, uh, I mean, not like a processed ball like they have at Arby's, you know what I mean? I was like cutting that and it was just all so gross and it would be a lunch rush and like the chicken wings that would like fall out of the basket into the fryer and just sit there the whole lunch because you didn't have time to pull them out. They would be by the end just looking like, you know, like a nuclear blast went off, just like bones and black gristle and shit. It was just so disgusting. So after a while, I just got grossed out. If anything was on a bone, I could not mess with it. And then at some point, 
it became clear to me that a patty was just the same thing, but I was remaining willfully ignorant of that fact. So I just shut it all down because it just grossed me out. Um, but then by seeing some things via John and a friend, I think I talked about this on the podcast, on your original thing. Um, a friend of John who worked for PETA at the time um, showed me, he, he was a little like, he wasn't so heavy handed like John. Um, and we were having kind of a conversation and I, I said, you know, I understand meat and killing. I understand how people could be not down with that, but I don't really understand the dairy and eggs thing if it's done humanely. And he's like, well, that's the thing. It's not, I could show you some stuff if you're open to it. And I was like, all right, like, you know, open-minded person. And he showed me some factory farm videos and that was it. Like I was done. I was out at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. Like no matter, no matter who you are, like, like once you see that it's going to touch you if you're a, a freaking human being, you know, if you have empathy, like, yeah, totally. If you're not a fucking monster, it should, <laughs> but it should strike an emotional chord, which but it you, did for me. And the ironic thing is, and I, I think I've talked about this before with you as well, growing up hunting and fishing and being raised by my dad, who he was, he was like a boy scout, like a through and through, you know what I mean? And his whole view on hunting was very like native American style, like live with the land, don't take advantage of it, no suffering, you know, like this is a privilege to be able to hunt and take this animal and then have it be your food. You're not out there shooting just for the sake of killing. You're not out there shooting just to get a trophy. So that really actually informed my whole worldview and my whole kind of moral um, outlook and influence me to be vegan. Right. Yeah. But most people aren't coming from that. Like it's, it's so interesting where you came from, but like most people don't even think about where their food comes from. And the fact that your experience, you worked in food service, you saw more of like the raw form of what it is people are really eating. And like that opened your eyes. Most people don't get that. They get what's packaged, what looks pretty and nice. And you know, they, they take it straight from the package to the grill or whatever. They don't see any of the other stuff. Right, or the plate arrives on their table and they take their photo of it for Instagram. And you know what I mean? Yeah. That's it. It just appears. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It's a shame. Um, but, uh, yeah, you were talking about St. Louis. Uh, just curious, you know, if I ever come to St. Louis for one of those hometown shows, uh, what are the best vegan places to eat in St. Louis? What would you recommend? There, uh, There's a great spot called Lulu's that... Um, it's a small restaurant with a little patio, but it's always just popping off, always super full. And they just actually added upstairs like a bar lounge, ping pong lounge with like oh, two ping dude. pong tables. It's super sick. That's so awesome. that place is great. Um, there is a place that recently opened called um, Utah Station that is straight up like vegan comfort food, fast food. So the chef does pretty much like vegan versions of all the stuff that we miss, like Big Macs and Chicken McNuggets and like uh, pizza, like Totino style pizza, like, but it's all handmade, all from scratch. So it's like gourmet, frozen food, fast food style. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, he does toasted ravioli, which is a St. Louis thing. Uh, it's like breaded and deep fried mm -hmm. ravioli. So that place is insanely good. Um, 
And there's there's another place called um, Frida's, F-R-I-D-A, apostrophe S, which when it first opened, my wife and I checked it out and didn't love it so much. But apparently over time, it's just become like the spot. Everyone's just like raving about it. So we're going to have to get back there. And then we got a bunch of just like, you know, restaurants that cater to vegan or, you know, vegan friendly diets. So a lot of ice cream spots around that have non-dairy and like a bunch of different forms too, like coconut or soy or almond milk, you know, so lots nice. of different options there. Uh, this donut shop that I actually worked for for a while. I did a bunch of video and stuff for them. Is it called Strange? Strange Don- yeah. Yeah. Strange Donuts. Uh, they've had vegan donuts since day one. Um, used to just do it on weekends and a couple years ago started doing it every day. So got that. There's a place called Vincent Van Donut that has vegan donuts as well. Um, lots of good stuff. And then we got, you know, we got the Impossible Whopper first. You know, that was our, like, Lucky. pilot city. <laughs> Dude, my wife and I ate so many of those <laughs> in that first, like, few weeks or a couple months. Like, we went over the top. Yeah, would you refer that one over Beyond? It depends. Like, um, I don't know. It really depends. I... I like the the juiciness of the Beyond Burger, but for some th- some things, I think the Impossible, like it has almost more of that like steak burger, like a uh, steak and shake kind of vibe, and it worked really well with White Castle. Um, so it depends. Yeah. You know, at home we've always yeah. made Beyond because it's been available at home. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I could go either way. I mean, the cool thing now is we have those options as vegans. We can prefer one brand over the other it's not like this is what you get you know like the one veggie burger in like all town yeah totally i think it's so cool that more vegan options or more vegan restaurants are popping up but i always think it's cooler when vegan options pop up in non-vegan restaurants because that shows you the demand of vegan food is is going up and up every year um and, and like you said the impossible burger going into restaurants i think mcdonald's is partnering up with beyond meat like freaking mcdonald's dude when when did we ever think we'd get to this level it's insane my wife and i talk about that like every other day so we hear some news and it's like you know just even two three years ago it seemed like the day where we would see a giant chain like that offer something vegan just seemed so far away and now it's like every time we're like, dude, I bet you by the end of the year, this happens. I bet you by the end of the year, this happens. And it's happening. You know, right. it's, it's exciting stuff. We're like, I think we're finally hitting kind of like the knee curve of the evolution where it's like we've been slowly kind of like, you know, doubling every several years of availability. And now it's like the interval's shorter. It's like every six months, there's something huge happening. Or, you know, it's going to be every month. And now it's to the point where if a chain or even just like a, you know, a one-off restaurant doesn't have something vegan, doesn't have something awesome, like an impossible this or that, they know they're behind. They know they're fucking up. Yes. So that's when like, that's when the economics of this like sometimes brutal capitalist kind of yeah. system really start working yeah. for good. Yeah, it actually does something good. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, for all those companies, it's business. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe they care about the ethics. I don't know, but it is about business. And like you said, it goes into our favor. And that's when you start seeing a, a good movement benefit from it. Um, how was it years ago when you would tour with Story of the Year, like nonstop, 
first of all, like how how many years did you guys like tour nonstop? Like it was a lot. Yeah, the first couple years were like pretty straight up nonstop. Um, we were doing like 300 shows a year kind of thing in oh three oh four oh five, and it was like it was brutal, especially in the the early days in the van. I would, you know, try to talk the dudes into going to Taco Bell like every time, but <laughs> uh, that only worked for a while, and then I would basically keep like you know, like a hand blender and a little jug of protein powder mm -hmm. to supplement whatever French fries and salad I'm getting from wherever. Yeah. Um, and occasionally there'd be a good vegan spot and I'd be able to, you know, spend a little extra money, but that was like pre like legit smartphone days. So it was such a hassle to find a spot and I couldn't just like open my iPhone and open maps and just go wherever. Right. There's no Uber that I could grab, you know, like, so until we had until we were big enough that the tour manager like would put together a legit tour book that had like the local cab company and all this and like even add in like vegan and vegetarian spots, I had to do all that work on my own and it was just exhausting. So a lot of times I just didn't do it. I would buy groceries at Walmart that would work, would be good enough stuff that I could microwave, you know, um, and yeah. that's, that's what we had. You know what I mean? Yeah, you did your best. Um I remember watching the Our Time Is Now DVD, and there was catering, um, I guess, at certain shows. How often did that actually happen? Um, it Like, it depended on the tour. Um, some venues would do catering, like venues that have a restaurant attached. Like, House of Blues always had catering and stuff like that. So either you would get catering or you would get, like, a meal buyout, which is, like, you know, 10 bucks, whatever. Like, either we're going to give you food or we're going to give you money for food. And we would always advance, hey, there's one vegan, there's one vegetarian. And they would make an effort. It was usually just like a bunch of like mixed veggies and stuff like, you know, like <laughs> stir fry, squash and right. broccoli and shit. I love I love vegetables, but <laughs> kind of hard to live off of them, though. Just alone. Just yeah, just straight up like stir fry all the time. Uh, so. It did get better. And dude, and anytime we were on Warp Tour, like the catering there has always been badass. Like from day one, the entire lifetime of Warped. Early days, it was like a lot more tofu. Just right. 10 different ways to make tofu kind of thing before there were more brands available and um, and before Tada Catering, who's done all those tours forever. Um, until, uh, until they kind of got hip to some of the brands and started really trying some new stuff. But either way, they always had plenty of stuff for us. And it was, that was like the highlight of Warped to me. Like it's blistering hot out there, just brutal, but I'm going to catering and it's going to be sweet and I'm going to be full. I'd imagine Warped Tour was pretty vegan friendly. I mean, you even have like people from PETA and stuff like walking around and the yeah. tents and stuff like, so I, I just, I assumed like it was pretty vegan friendly. Um, would would you meet a lot of people like either in Warped Tour or people you would tour with, like other vegans from different bands that you would kind of like, hang out with, like go out and get some vegan food, like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was harder to go anywhere. It's always hard to go anywhere on those big festival tours that are in like an amphitheater that's usually way out in the county kind of thing. Um, but I would still like, you know, make friends that are vegan and would hang with the, the folks with PETA and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, 
it was cool. And then when we were on smaller tours together, like, you know, some bands, we would, it's cool to split a cab, you know, to go to like, especially, you know, you're in New York or LA or anything like that with a bunch of spots, yeah. go hit somewhere good. Oh yeah, man. I'm sure when you landed in those cities, you were stoked. So many Super options. Cool. Yeah. Actually it can be quite overwhelming sometimes. You don't know which place to hit up. For uh, sure. So uh, let's see. I wanted to ask you actually, what does a typical day of tour look like, especially back in the day when you guys would do all these like 300 shows like in a year? What would a typical day look like from the time you woke up to the time you clock out? Um, it was, it was like a lot less eventful back in the day before doing like VIP meet and greets and things like that were were more common. You know what I mean? So I would get up pretty late check out the venue, um, go walk around, try to find a food spot or just like assess the area. And then, um, you know, depending on the size of the tour or what the crew situation was like, of course, set up equipment and everything, participate in like the actual load in, um, and usually do a sound check. Sometimes we'd have a meet and greet. When we were on that Nintendo fusion tour back in the day, we actually, like part of our job was to hang out with contest winners and play video games, which that's so awesome. Sick. That's so cool. Uh, and then like we, we used to spend a lot of time getting just like ready for the show, just getting like in the zone. Yeah. Uh, just listening to loud music and having some drinks and getting like pumped, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, we're such like a high energy band. We couldn't just be like, Oh, go on stage in 15 minutes. It was like, <laughs> You have to make every night feel like a party or like it's the best night of the yeah. whole fucking year. Yeah. That's... So whether it's like dance music or metal or whatever, like to get us like in the zone, we would spend at least an hour beforehand uh, doing that. Or Ryan and I would always put on like uh, the Pantera home videos uh, or we'd put on like there'd always be like a comedy or something good like on TV to get just get our like vibe up um, like Bad Boys 2 or like... Oh, dude, I'm excited for January, by the way. Oh, dude, I'm super I, nervous, too. I can't wait. I mean, to yeah. see Martin Lawrence back on the big screen, like, yeah, so awesome. Um, but very cool, very cool, man. I appreciate you sharing that experience. Did you guys yeah. ever, how did you guys have time to, like, then write on the tour bus or, like, you know, like, after a show, like, you're exhausted and you're driving overnight, I'm assuming, like, how do you have time to do all that and then catch up with your family, like, like FaceTime them or whatever it was back then. Yeah. Like, I just got do all that. Just like this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there was more time back then. Uh, but uh, especially when we had kind of a full crew and a bus, we didn't have as many responsibilities, like minutes, minute. Um, but Ryan, like, has always been the kind of dude that just, like, He's got his little like audio recorder or his computer or his interface, whatever it is. And he would go plug in wherever he was, even sit in his bunk. Like, you know, it's long ways. And he would just sit in it like sideways and just play like uh-huh. down like this, you know, Damn. the dude's just like always been writing all the time. So that was never, that was never a thing that couldn't be done because even though the technology that we, the recording technology we had then was nothing like it is now. It was still so much more available than 10 years before us or 20 years before us. So um, there's plenty of time to do that. We, we couldn't so much like write as a band. That was something that we would do when we were at home and meet up 
all day, every day for like months and just like jam together and work on demos that Ryan had made, this, that, and the other. We actually did try to like, on the Nintendo Fusion Tour, we had two buses, which was stupid. Uh, we spent too much money. But we, uh, we had a little like electronic drum set in the back lounge that like filled up that whole space. You couldn't even sit anywhere. You had to like climb around to get into it. Yeah. And we had, we had little like headphone amps, like a uh, little pod type things and a little sort of mixer thing. And the idea was to like plug it all in and play together. But Josh could never get the vibe of those drums. So I'd imagine we ended up like Ryan and I ended up dicking around on those drums more than anybody. And then never wrote a thing as a band. We tried once to all sit together and Josh was like, well, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I remember one of the first, uh, maybe it was like second show or something, I came out and um, I met you guys like behind the venue. Ryan was still in the van that you guys had. And, uh, you know, I think I asked like one of you guys, I was like, hey, you know, can I meet Ryan? Like, is Ryan around? And like, Ryan comes out, he was in the tour bus recording, he comes out with like a freaking pick in his finger, like the dude was always working. Uh, so I I appreciate that, man. I appreciate all you guys' hard work. Um, I want to come back to music. Uh, I have a few more questions just personally about you um, or, or in general with the band. Like, you, all you guys are pretty fit. Like, all you guys... Are, are healthy looking and everything like what is you guys uh fitness routine like um either now back home or when you were traveling i don't know if you had time to work out yeah i mean off it really was like up and down like there were times when i was super into it especially on warped we would like there was a lot of time to burn because you play 30 minutes and you just like hang out all day so there's always like a trailer that has a bunch of weights in the back and everybody's kind of you know lifting weights and being juice heads, but, uh, <laughs> just, just getting around on a tour that big is a damn workout. And, um, then, you know, we're a high energy band on stage. So that that's, that's a workout yeah. as well. Um, but at home, like it's been up and down over the years, Ryan now is in better shape than he's ever been in his whole life. He was on damn American Ninja warrior insane by uh, the way. And just like did pretty damn well. Uh, and actually, the the obstacle that he that he lost on, or that you know, the one that he didn't get past. Yeah. The, the producer told him straight up, like, dude, that thing has taken down some of the best competitors in this whole thing. It's kind of a kind of a shitty obstacle. It's like the bar where you have to like throw it and almost climb with it, right? Yeah, and the like the two arms of it are like they're uneven, so it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That uh, looks like way easier than it actually is. Like I do a little bit of rock climbing yeah, and I've tried, it just, it's not easy. Yeah. It, uh, like you look at her like, Oh, I'll probably do that. But no, dude, no way. Right. But, uh, yeah. So the dude's in insane shape. Um, how about you? Yeah. Do you like, are you into like anything specific sport wise? Dude? No, I'm, uh, I am not, I, I'm out of shape at this point. Like I'm, you know, a slim dude. I got lucky on the genetic level, but, uh, the best I do because I got my Apple Watch and I can see just how lazy I'm being. I uh, I make sure like twice a day, like if I'm at work, on my breaks, I'll just go and just like walk really like get, you know, kind of power walk like a yeah like an old like an old mall walker just to get the heart rate up, and make sure I'm at least doing that like bare minimum to not be sedentary. Yeah, I mean I'm on my feet regardless at work, so uh, that helps. But 
getting ready for shows is like, okay, oh shit, here we go. Mm-hmm. Like, even if we just do that one home show, it's like out running the neighborhood, like in rehearsal, we're just like running in place, like yeah, doing everything we can to get back in shape. Because when you're on tour, it's just like automatic. You're just like, the whole thing's like a machine. You're just... Yeah, in the zone. In the and- yeah, and you, and you take for granted... You know, I, I know I definitely took for granted how much I could eat and drink and not see it at all on my body, you know, just for an hour, just going hard as hell. It was like damn CrossFit, you know what I mean, right. on stage. Yeah, yeah, I'm or sure. Or playing like a basketball game or something. Um, and then you combine that with just like how much you walk around on tour, even if you're just going from the bus to the venue and back, you know, you yeah. move a lot. So I definitely have felt the effects of not having that built into my day right now that i've gotten older and i've been home more yeah yeah i hear you i mean just like with any lifestyle change you know you get used to it but you mentioned technology like your watch like i recommend like everyone everyone use like these iphones or whatever you have to your advantage you could track your calories track your steps any fitness run that you do or lift weights like like these things are are amazing I love where tech is going in terms of health and you can track like everything and you know, you could go back like a month ago and be like, Oh, how much did I weigh? Like how much weight did I lose or how much weight did I gain? And I think it's just amazing. Um, super cool. Uh, so years ago, um, way back in the day, uh, I think you were straight edge or maybe like the whole band was straight edge. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I'm a big fan of, of that lifestyle. I've got nothing against people who drink or anything. I just want to put that out there, but, um, super, super into the, the straight edge lifestyle. I just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, I was, uh, so I was straight edge from like nine, 19 or 20, I guess I was 20 until I was about 25 ish. So through, you know, becoming 21 and it being legal, I was, I was just like, okay, now I'm 21. It didn't, you know, it had no bearing on like my day to day life. And I think it was great at that time being straight edge because we were just doing wild shit all the time. Sober. Like Dan, Dan had never had a drink in his life up until he was like 26. Oh, Ryan wow. drank. Um, I drank earlier, you know, younger, like as a teenager or whatever. Um, just being you know, like a high school kid party and being an idiot. Um, uh, and Josh drank a little bit, but like with half the band in the early days before Phil being straight edge, and then Phil didn't drink much either once he came on. Uh, I mean, still to the world, we were five from the beginning. Phil Phil came right. in like right in the beginning of the Page Avenue recording, uh, and he was like, you know, he grew up like a church kid. He wasn't a big drinker, so like at the height of our like our come up when we were on tour with Lincoln Park, yeah. Hoobastank, P.O.D. Our, like, wild partying nights were playing Halo on the buses or, like, getting the bus drivers to park them next to each other so we could system link, do, like, the old land party, like, from bus to bus and play Halo. That's awesome, yeah. Not drinking. So, for me, it was, like, good that I I didn't also have alcohol in the mix because we were already just doing wild shit anyway. It was like in those like jackass Blink-182 days where like pushing each other like through bushes with shopping carts. And if we had also been drunk, like, dude, we probably would have been arrested and all that shit. Um, So it kept us focused on like doing those things, not just to be stupid, but to like document it and make those DVDs and do all that, all that kind of crazy stuff, you know, 
to create a like a lifestyle around the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To kind of brand us in that way. Right. Rather than just being an idiot. Um, so between that and also trying to be good musicians, um, I'm glad that I was straight edge at that time. I eventually got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm I'm a grown enough adult that I can be responsible and not be an idiot like I was when I was a teenager. Well, I could try not to be an idiot. Um, so started drinking just like, you know, some beers here and there and kind of broke edge. Um, and it's been that way ever since, you know, and I have, I've had like my ups and downs, like I rage and I hate it the next day and it happens like, uh, my 40th birthday is in a couple weeks and we're going to party really hard and I'm probably going to vomit and that's going to be really dumb, but I'm turning 40. You're turning 40, so, man. You deserve yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But that's cool. I, man, when, uh, when, uh, that DVD came out, by the way, our time is now and in the wake and, and all that, like, I felt like, like my, my, and I was in high school, by the way, too. Like, that's when I started first drinking was like 16, 17. I was doing the same stupid shit with my friends back in the day and just going wild, man. Um, and it got to a point where it was like just way too much. Like, thankfully I never got arrested or into a car crash or anything, but it was just like every, every weekend was partying. And I turned 21, actually had my last beer with Dan at a warp tour. And that's wow. it. I called it quits, man. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just had a beer with like my favorite singer, like great way to go out. Like, like I said, I've got nothing against people who drink and want to party. Um, and you know, what's funny is like you, you mentioned Jackass, like anytime I watch like you guys DVDs, it always reminded me of that too. I was surprised you actually were doing that all sober. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, and I was like very conscious, conscious of it. Like, okay, we're going to do this. And you roll this camera, you roll this camera. It's like, if we're going to do this dumb shit, like I want to be able to watch it. Yeah. And I want to be able to like compile all this because I also, you know, I grew up on the Pantera stuff and introduced Ryan to that like early days, like way back in the day with my old band, we were like crazy stupid, just like smashing stuff, like pull off on the side of the road and like there's an abandoned building and just like smash a bunch of stuff and be total derelict idiots. Uh, and Ryan... <laughs> always talks about how he was like on the road with us once we went he was like playing guitar with my band at the time our old like new metal band was that big blue monkey or something else pretty big blue monkey um well big blue monkey was a band at the time but he was like playing with my band and uh we got out we were just like smashing this thing i don't remember what it was and he he talked about how he was just in the van just like oh my god oh my god we're gonna get arrested this is the worst what are these dudes doing? Holy shit, I made a bad decision. <laughs> but, uh, so, like, I grew up on that kind of shit, and then seeing Jackass become, like, this huge success of dudes doing just dumb stuff, I was like, oh, well, I want to do that. We can do that. And then I got, I got a laptop, like, when I was, like, 19, working at Emo's, that restaurant, uh, from a dude there, and it had a demo version of Adobe Premiere on it. Oh, nice. And I was like, oh, shit, I can edit video. Yeah. I, I can compile all this. And then we put it on Ryan's gateway computer at the time, uh, started editing, and we both got really into that. And it was like, it was then like a reason to act a damn fool because we were going to make these awesome kind of home video, lifestyle video type things. Yeah, love that. I love that you guys learned multiple skills. Like you weren't just 
a basis. Like you were learning how to film, like you were filmmaking essentially. And that's right, really yeah. cool. That's really interesting. Really yeah. Yeah. Um, sweet. Yeah. So I want to, I want to come back to the music and talk a little bit about that. Cause a lot of the music that you guys make, it, it's, it's super relatable and you kind of leave it open for interpretation. I don't know if, if you guys have done that, but design, I, I have a feeling you did. Um, and the music video of the antidote, by the way, which which I freaking love, man. Like, like you can you can you can watch it and, and you can see all the visuals. You can interpret that any way you like. And and I even relate it as like a vegan or somebody passionate for the environment. Like, it, it's so cool. Um, so if you, anyone watching this, like, just like YouTube the antidote by Story of the Year and watch that. Um, I uh, you guys write political songs. You guys write very down earth personal songs i want to read this lyric out from from actually the antidote uh, and it, it goes with our weapons drawn and all our resources gone we're facing extinction the only antidote consists of blood sweat and hope and a blueprint to save us from all that we've become like those those are powerful lyrics like so my question is what are you guys intentions when writing music yeah it it has evolved over the years it's gone from like very personal, very like now, you know, seemingly like cliche emo type stuff in the early days to more political things, but trying to keep a personal angle there. Um, like there's a song in the Black Swan called We're Not Going to Make It that's it's about racism, but it's a personal story. Um, so we've gone full emo, full political, a mix of the two. And then uh, on the most recent album, Wolves, that they made while I was not in the band for a little bit, Dan went very personal on that. And I felt a lot of vibes that matched kind of the Page Avenue vibe, you know, just like that, like, um, uh, like, a, like about your guys' lives and like your struggles and perspectives. Yes, the, the, the struggle for sure. And like, just feeling like, desperation for you know wanting to be an artist and and live a life as an artist be able to create and share it with people and feeling like you might not get that opportunity that kind of thing um so very personal again it's like kind of full circle um but it's always i think like any like any lyrics any art whether it's um whether it's the inspiration of the song like the, the sort of the feeling of the music that might trigger that and then which in turn uh triggers the idea for the visual element with the video um it's stuff that we care about and stuff that we're feeling in those moments i don't think we've ever set out to write a type of song because we feel like we need that type of song you know yeah. what i mean yeah it's like we feel this we feel strongly about it we want to say something to the world mm -hmm. so yeah. Um, I've always I've always felt good about the lyrics with this band. I we used to write a lot as a group in the early days. Then Dan and I wrote a lot, just the two of us. And the past couple albums, it's been just Dan, um, which for me is like a little bit of a bum out because I like being part of that process. But I also understand and really love that it's <clears throat> every word that comes out of his mouth is now from his brain, from his heart. And I think that's as as important as anything. Um, 
I'm also a better bass player than I used to be. So I get more out of like writing the bass than I did in the early days when I like almost needed that, that lyrical outlet to feel artistically connected. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I'm going to take this question a step further. What do you think of music as therapy and, and what it can do for mental health? Dude, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's therapeutic for me. It's therapeutic for, for literally billions of people. Sometimes it can uh, take you to a darker place, which isn't great. Um, but I think more often than not, it gives you sort of a, a connection. I think that's why people connect with, with singers so much because they feel like they're speaking to them or they're speaking for them. Um, and I mean, I know that we, that our music and Dan's lyrics have, have influenced people's lives. And, and in one specific case, I know saved a girl's life. She said it straight up to Dan in a message on MySpace, I think back in the day. Um, and then he turned around and wrote a song about it on the black swan. So which song was that? um angel in the swamp that oh, wow that's interesting yeah, yeah i've never yeah. heard of that before i mean i've yeah. heard of the song obviously but not not the right. story behind it yeah it's like I mean, when he he kind of like came to us at rehearsal and said hey i got this message um it's pretty heavy it said this and i want to write a song about it um he just said straight up i'm going to write a song about this and i think right away he kind of it just it fit with with that song musically, um, the, the dynamics of it and everything. And he wrote it and we were all just like floored by how, like how emotionally moving it was, especially knowing kind of the background. And, um, that for, for Dan at that point, I feel like that was a place that he hadn't gone, you know, a level of like personal connection that he hadn't, hadn't gotten to, because we did write a lot of songs in the early days about our relationships, like in, internally. So that was a, a new kind of frontier for Dan. And he just killed it on that and said some stuff that I think took that whole album up another notch, not just angry political shit, but like really kind of added another facet. Yeah. So super proud to be a part of that song in any way that we, you know, had that impact on somebody's life. That's awesome, man. Yeah, that's got to be so gratifying as an artist and producer of music. And uh, like I was saying before, I think it's cool that music can be interpreted every way. But I also love hearing the stories behind it, exact reasons why an artist writes a, you know, a song or why they draw a certain painting. Um, going to the music making process, uh, what is your favorite part about making music? Is it just tracking a bass? Is it um, kind of thinking about the whole song as a whole or uh, maybe writing the lyrics with Dan like what's your favorite part about it uh, I I of course love that feeling when like something comes together or I hear a riff or a demo or something for the first time and just get like amped up about the idea of that becoming a story of the year song or a, a me song or whatever um, but the recording process overall is my favorite I uh, I just love being in the studio. I love seeing stuff come together. Just like that collaborative artistic environment is so, so fun. And so like, um, 
like nostalgic also because I grew up watching a lot of documentaries about like you know bands that I listened to. I watched that year and a half in the life of Metallica documentary that part one in the studio making the black album literally hundreds of times, if not like over a thousand at this point. So being in a band that gets opportunities to record, you know, real albums in a real studio, uh, it's just awesome. So it like, it takes me back there. It's, I've got that nostalgia, but then we're creating our own stuff. So it's like this awesome expression. And I just love like, just love the, the environment. I don't even have to be tracking bass to be stoked. Just like watching Josh hit the drums or listen to Dan in the booth. And it's just, it's, it's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it gets you even more stoked. Like you guys probably feed off of each other's energy. I'm sure that happens a lot on stage in yeah. the studio. So yeah. Epic man. Um, this is probably a cliche question. Uh, you could probably get this often. I don't know. But what what do you see yourself doing if you weren't a musician? Or or I guess like when you took your break from Sodi, uh, what were you up to then? Like, yeah, I um, I think no matter what, I will always be making something, creating something, doing something artistic. Um, when I left the band, I was doing uh, I was doing a lot of video editing. Uh, shooting video just became sort of like a, a filmmaker. Ryan and I were, we were actually in the middle of making our documentary when I left, I want to say, pretty sure. Um, yeah, I think you left in 2014 and you guys announced or had started working on it. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was a little bit into that, I think. Yeah. So, uh, so I was already kind of there and I've always been into graphic design, shit like that. Uh, got a little bit into photography via video, working for Strange Donuts. Mm -hmm. So I was doing food photography there. Um, so still, I mean, kind of the same stuff I've always done with the band. Same, same stuff that Ryan and I have always done, but just for other people, for other companies, for other, you know, for myself, whatever. So um, if, if all those dudes, uh, if... They, they were all in a helicopter that crashed in, into the ocean. I would probably keep making music and uh, keep being a filmmaker, keep being an artist. For sure. I would prefer if they would not all die in a helicopter crash in the ocean. I really it hope not. It, it does. Yes, it does, unfortunately. Um, but let's talk about the, the film, the documentary that you guys made, Who Killed or Saved the Music Industry? And I wrote, I wrote these names down. You guys had some awesome interviews uh john feldman of goldfinger we the king's yellow card all-time low no doubt disturbed the ceo of patreon uh founder of warp tour so can you talk a little bit about this documentary that you guys made um and what what you were trying to do with this documentary yeah so we um we started making it in 2012 we did a kickstarter campaign uh that was successful we raised 30 grand, which we um, spent on traveling around the country, buying equipment, the whole nine yards uh, to make this film. I mean, the lights that I have up right now, the microphone that I have right here was bought with that Kickstarter money. Um, so it's about the death or rebirth of the music industry, depending on how you look at it or both. Uh, and we, being a band who signed 
a traditional, pretty traditional deal in 2002 with, you know, a little signing bonus. It was a small deal at the time. Now, pretty big, but uh, small deal, little, little signing bonus, um, modest recording budget and modest kind of budgets for promotion and videos and things like that. We would like get in advance to make an album. Here's some money to the band members to live on. We're going to spend this much money on the, the making the album. It's going to come out on this day. It's going to go into stores as a CD, as a tape. If you're still, you know, in parts of the world, buy tapes in 2002, <laughs> uh, which there were. There are story, story of the year tapes out there for real. Wait, are you serious? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, uh, dude. Yeah. It, places in Asia, I think tapes were still happening until like early 2000s. Oh, dang. Nice. So I never got a hold of one. I really want one. Um, yeah, it'd be sick to have like as a collector's item. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I got a Walkman around here somewhere. I could jam that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we did that whole thing, label paying for uh, videos and everything else. And we did four albums that way. But all along the way, we were watching physical sales decline and seeing the effects on like budgets for things or like how things were promoted whether or not we had label support when we would like go to a city or this or that and watching like piracy go crazy and just like living through this whole transition and like struggling being super bummed like granted like our breakout album is you know it will it's still you know it outstreams all the others regardless of how people get music people pay more attention to that one so it is what it is but the amount that we sold or didn't sell more like on the subsequent records we couldn't help but wonder like okay if people weren't stealing music if it wasn't just being kind of just tossed around as data as ones and zeros over the internet how many copies would we actually sell would this album have gone gold would it be this you know so ryan and i got really interested in other people's perspectives on that and kind of telling the story of it so we made this documentary that starts pretty much um we tell a little backstory. It starts pretty much with like Napster in the late nineties. Then fast forwards to where we were and we're just kind of, we're talking to artists, getting their perspectives on having lived through that, where they see it going, talk to some young artists about, um, how they've, how they've done things, you know, with never having experienced the old model at all and really trying to look forward. But as we made this thing, it took us like four years to make it. Stuff was changing rapidly as technology does. And we were also getting more interviews leveraged by the interviews that we've gotten before that. And it was just kind of, we couldn't really find like a stopping point. We started adding streaming into the topics. So it, it was really, and we were also learning throughout the whole thing to be filmmakers. It was like our film school. So we, if you watch it, you'll see some shots just look like shit and some look great. You know, because we were just learning and you mix that all up in an edit and it's like really kind of inconsistent. But the story's there nonetheless. The story yeah. of us living through it and kind of reaching out to other people. And uh, we finally just said, okay, we gotta we gotta wrap this shit. We have to give this film to the backers. So we kind of just like you know, put an arbitrary cutoff line in it and wrapped it up in a way that I think t still tells a great story, but now that it's been you know, five or more years since we finished it, 
it's more of like a historical take on things because stuff has changed so much and we are fully in the streaming world where it's, it actually generates like decent revenue for bands, although it's not perfect. It's better than it was a few years ago. Um, so the documentary is dated in that sense, but it still holds value as a historical look and more than anything really talks about the misconception that anyone who's in a band that tours must be wealthy, independently wealthy, and just, you know, just cool on the financial level. And that's just not the case. It's not the 90s. You don't just get signed, you get a bunch of money, just, you know, throw your signing bonus into, like, investments, and you get a damn Lamborghini and all this bullshit. It's not that way, you know? Uh, Being an artist is a working-class gig, even if you're on the radio or you're, you know, you got a million YouTube subscribers or this or that, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I 100% relate to that. Do you think it's that misconception of people just seeing you guys tour, seeing you guys like dance on stage and have an awesome time? Like, do you feel like they're almost like, oh, like this, look at this artist, like they're well off, like I'm doing this nine to five job, like I'm not doing as well, like I'm, I'm entitled to to downloading this song illegally. Like, what, what do you think? Like, you know, after talking with all the artists, some of the fans out before concerts, what do you think is going on with the world of why they're justifying downloading music illegally? I, th- I think that, I think you nailed it. That's exactly what it was. And that remains. Um, so it is a tough sell, even for like uh, podcasters and, you know, YouTubers who don't have that, um, that same like sort of like, Rockstar lifestyle um, stigma, if you can call it a stigma, or like misconception. It's still like, oh yeah, I see you on YouTube and you've got a bunch of subscribers. You must be cool. Like I don't, I don't need to subscribe to your Patreon and give you a dollar for every podcast you put out. But no, we do need to support creators because this we don't have like legislation and like systems in place to benefit the artists like we did in the old days of the music industry and like we still have in place for film in a lot of ways, although that's still struggling. Um, even though like the artists were getting paid shit compared to the the labels, still there was enough revenue that everyone could live and it was cool. And if you were lucky, you made a ton of money. And if you're unlucky, well, you still need more money than you would have if you worked at McDonald's uh, and you got to be in a band. So like, without those systems in place, without those like laws that say if you get played on the radio, you get X number of cents per play. That's the law. You know what I mean? Without that shit, we need to like. Number one, we need to realize that. Number two, we need to support creators, whether they're making a vegan podcast or a visual effects YouTube channel or they're streaming video games or they're making a song that you love that you claim to be like unable to live without you need to support those artists and realize that they're trying to make a living and if they can't they they'll either make shittier music because they won't have the time or they'll just stop making music or they'll stop making podcasts or they'll stop making this or that so give them a give them a buck give them (laughs) whatever you can and uh and they'll make more I, I 100% agree. And I think also Stephen from Amberlynn, which you interviewed, I think he said in the film, every, every time you 
you buy a song from the artist, that's a that's a vote for the artist. You're keeping them around and you're you're helping them produce more of that product, that art that initially, you know, that initially you bought, right? Um, so I 100% I agree. And, uh, you know, lo looking at everything and, and the way things have gone, even since the film, what what is the best way to support a, mu a musician or an artist? Um, I, I guess uh, more specifically, like for music, is it is it buying a CD or is that even relevant anymore? Or is it these streaming services or going to concerts? Like, what's the best in your opinion? Um, I, I would say since there's no like kind of one business model anymore, it used to be a band sold albums, they sold merch, they went on tour, they sold tickets. And you buy those things and that's what supports their that's what supports their their living. Um, even though it wasn't a direct one-to-one, -one, it's not like you buy the CD and the band puts $10 in their pocket. Still, the label makes their money, so the money that they put on the front end is worth it, and that continues, blah, blah, blah. Um, still, by buying those things, you support it, you make it all happen. Since now it's like, you know, maybe they independently released an album or they did a 50-50 deal with a label uh, or they're just doing like YouTube covers or, you know what I mean? There's like all these different things. Like some artists have Patreon, some artists do, uh, Kickstarters for their albums. Some artists, uh, still release them with labels, whatever it is. Like if there's an opportunity to give that artist money for the thing they're creating, the product that they're creating, although it's like this untangible, intangible, uh, just like, it's ones and zeros in a computer really. And it goes into our ears somehow. Mm -hmm. Like, even though it's not a thing you can grab, it's a product that they made. It's something that didn't exist until they thought it up. Give them something for that. If you want them to make more buy that, like that, you know, whatever bundle they have on their pre-sale that comes with the t-shirt and this or that, or buy the, the meet and greet pass, like support them. If you want more of what they're making, because if you don't, there will be no more. Uh, I would say like on a streaming level, Spotify is not great for artists still. Uh, Apple Music is better because they have a more standardized payout. Um, but Spotify works on, all of them actually, to my knowledge, work on sort of like a percentage of revenue type thing. So if, let's say for round numbers, Spotify had 1 million subscribers and they pay let's say they pay 10 bucks a month. Again, none of these figures are right, but so they've got $10 million by saying, Hey, everybody listen more, stream more, stream more. The artists won't get paid any more money. They'll still get paid whatever percentage they got, you know, whatever percentage their streams were out of the total streams. So there's only so much pie to go around. You might get 50 slices, but the slices are going to be small because yeah. there's only so much, um, where, Apple has done things, they've standardized it, and they're actually, they've been pushing for legislation for a long time. They've been lobbying to standardize it just like radio play. Like you get played, you get X amount of cents, period. They want it to be the same for streaming, and all of the other streaming services have been fighting that because they, they don't want to standardize it. That threatens their business. But sorry about you. If it threatens your business, 
like figure out a better business, like pay these people mm -hmm. what they deserve for the content that they created. I hate the word content in that sense, but um, you know what I mean? Um, it's like if a radio station needs to pay artists X amount of dollars, they have to sell X amount of uh, ads to come up with that money to pay for it. Like that, that TV, same thing, residuals on shows, commercials, like when, when there's like hard laws in place, you have to get paid this much businesses work it out or they fail. The ones that work it out, um, stick around the ones that don't like maybe they pivot, maybe they're done. It's just like, Oh, we can't pay somebody. So yeah. we're not going to be dicks. And you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I like what you said about Apple. It's incentivizing the artist like hey you know we're gonna pay this artist more because more people are buying from this artist that makes sense like why why not standardize it like that and um the best way i can kind of translate this especially with my viewers it's like going to a supermarket and buying for beyond burger bananas broccoli whatever like when you put that money down for those products you're you're putting them back on the shelf and that's what you're doing for an artist in that sense it's the exact same thing so if you're not gonna pay for bananas if you're gonna steal them guess fucking what you're not gonna have bananas in that supermarket anymore right yeah exactly it's even though it is again this intangible thing music it's just you just play it it's out in the world it is still a product and the type of economies that exist on this earth at this point in history, there has to be some kind of exchange, which happens to be currency right now, like dollars or yen or whatever the hell. Um, so yeah, I, I hope for a future where we have this like Star Trek utopian type thing where we take care of everyone and wealth is just something is like the icing on the cake of like a, a normal healthy life. And no one has to worry about not dying, you know, just working just to not die. And where we can just share things with each other. Everyone makes things, everyone teaches each other things and shares stuff like, I have this shared utopian vision of the future, but until we get there, like we have to give people money for the work they do. Yeah. Um, if you're making, if you're not making good art and it doesn't sell, okay. But if someone's making something and you do enjoy it, you do get value out of it, compensate them for it. Absolutely. I mean, like I'll, I'll admit on camera, like I used to be uneducated or ignorant, ignorant or however you want to argue it, but I used to download music back in the day before I knew any better. And then I learned about what artists go through. And then I started doing this YouTube channel and I learned about the hard work that goes into it. And the fact that, Dude, like it's insane. People do not believe me, but I drive like two hours one way to my job, two hours back. Like, like I work my ass off like outside of this. And when I'm doing what I'm doing, like I'm super passionate about getting people healthy, getting them to be vegan. But if it's not financially, you know, if it doesn't make sense to me financially, like how am I going to do it and support myself? So like all, all creators, artists, you know, filmmakers, whatever, go through the same thing. And like, and obviously people do enjoy or value what you do. You've got a ton of subscribers. What are you up to now on YouTube? Like I'm over 70,000. It's insane. Yeah. Like how, yeah. what, you know? Yeah. So, so 70,000 people care enough about what you're doing to press a subscribe button, which 
to me, isn't just a uh, casual like follow. Like, I don't want my YouTube channel or my, my feed cluttered with a bunch of shit. So I subscribe to the stuff that I care about. If I don't, you know what I mean? So Definitely. clearly those people care about what you're doing. They value it in some way. And you should be able to make enough from it to continue doing it. Like, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. I mean, you guys, obviously we talked about this before. Like, music, yeah, you're like, it's ones and zeros, but look what it meant for that woman. Like, it saved her life. Like, it's it's yeah. something. There's something there. And, I, you know, I think the fact that people can digitally download it and they can't hold it in their hands anymore, I think that kind of took away from somewhat of the, of the meaning. Not really, but somewhat. And yeah, because because every, everything is just content now. There's like so much stuff that it's like, oh, you just get all this stuff, right? Like you just get it, and all this happened in like less than a generation. So it's like parents don't understand enough about the economics of it to teach their kids about it, and then the kids are just like, oh, I just get stuff on the internet. I right. just why would I pay for? It? I just get it. Like so, their parents are paying for their, you know, their 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 cell phone bill, and they're being fed ads that has you know what I mean? So there, it's just like. I think very few people actually even vaguely understand the economics of all this stuff. I don't claim to be an expert, but I like know enough, like you and I both being on the other side of it, knowing what it takes to create this content and what little money might come in from it. It's, it's a big ass reality check that most people don't see. I, I agree. And dude, can you talk about like maybe some of the shit and struggles you guys went through as story of the year? Like, like from the beginning, like how, like, you know, working hard, like, could you talk about some of that experience, like, early off, before you guys made it, and until the day I die came out? We, um, we were, like, we were all just, you know, teenage kids who worked at pizza places, like, all the way up until we were, you know, early 20s, I guess, and we had jobs that we didn't ultimately care about, like most young kids, because music is what we cared about, music and skateboarding, and rollerblading i was a fruit booter i remember a clip of you uh rollerblading in um that promo video did it yep meet so, out badass uh, <laughs> uh so like we we picked jobs that we could could just like that would require minimal attention and would also afford us like some time during that job to write music listen to music whatever so we were delivering pizzas. Even like when I worked at that pizza place, I was in the back. I was an assistant manager at the time in the back with my laptop editing Big Blue Monkey videos on the clock. You know what I mean? So like. Uh, like you were always like in the zone in terms of like your band and your work and time. everything. Yeah, it was like it was like school for us. That was like our focus. You do the job just to pay the bills. And then it's like your focus is your career in this. And that's what we did. And then uh, when we moved out to Orange County, California, from uh, from St. Louis, it was eight of us. So five band members. Um, our our friend who was like went on to be our tour manager, and then our manager at one point, and um, Dan's then girlfriend, now wife, and another friend of the former guitar player who like moved into the house. We're all living eight, eight people in this two, three bedroom house with bunk beds and shit, just like 
because we wanted to be there and we wanted to do the damn thing. You know what I mean? Um, and we built a studio in the garage in a rental house, like should not have been building anything in this house, but fully built it out. And, uh, I think I worked like a couple days at a, like, like a mall kiosk trying to sell people like on a, like get them to come to a, a you know, like a timeshare presentation thing and get a free vacation. Just like just bullshit job. Yeah. It's like, okay, I need, I need a couple bucks. And then eventually I was like, fuck it. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just try to sell our music. And we made this like deal with ourselves. Like we would buy CDs from ourselves. Like I would take my money and I would buy X amount of CDs for cost from the band. And then I would try to sell them whatever profit I got from that. I would keep. So we would just like go to malls with backpacks and headphones and just like put headphones on people, like sneak up behind them and tr like try to sell them our CDs. And then we ended up doing that same thing on Warp Tour in the early days before we got signed. We did it actually even the first little bit of 2003 Warped, uh, but then stuff started popping off and, you know, it kind of took care of itself. But we, I mean, we went out and like hustled. In, in ways that people weren't really doing at that time. And then I would see bands, you know, three or four, like following that, doing the like CD and headphone thing. And I was like, it was kind of cool to see like, oh, maybe we kind of influenced this, like help kind of create this like indie hustle. Even though we were a major label band, we still, we took shit into our own hands. You know, we were used to like grinding and struggling and being eight people in a three bedroom house. You know what I mean? So yeah. Is it true, like, so how did John Feldman come into play from Goldfinger? Did you, is it true you guys snuck into his van and, like, dropped off a mixtape or something? No, we, uh, kind of. We, um, <laughs> so we had this, like, promo video, which ended up, the re-edit edit ended up being the thing that was on, uh, the enhanced CD part, part of Page Avenue, when that was a thing. Yeah. Like, the CD, CD-ROM thing. Yeah, yeah. Um. Made it on a VHS tape, and that was actually a re-edit of a longer form, this Big Blue Monkey uh, video, VHS again. Um, instead of like just like a demo CD, we would hand out these VHS tapes, and Goldfinger was playing Point Fest, uh, which is the radio festival in St. Louis. So we went to the meet and greet, gave one to John there at the table, just like they just did a signing, whatever. And then since we played Point Fest, we opened it um, and really fucking pulled some shit to get on that, too. Like, there's a contest. That's another story. But uh, so we were opening the show, so we had access. And our then guitar player got kind of back but where the buses were. He knew which one was Goldfingers and just, like, opened the door and was like, hey, uh, here's this thing. And just, like, put it up there. Um, yes. and, and I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened if they told him to fuck off or if they like whatever, or if it just got kind of tossed, but between that one and the one from the meet and greet, uh, Brian, the guitar player at the time of Goldfinger had it. And then Darren drummer, they were just kind of sitting around after the show. I think they were driving. They were like, what do we want to watch? What's this? What about this thing? Didn't somebody give us this? Let's just watch this. And they put it in and watched it. And John thought, like, we just looked like a crazy band that would be fun to tour with and maybe had some, like, some good shit going on. So we got a call, and he asked, uh, his booking agent asked if we could do, like, four shows, I think. 
And we were like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Where? Like, just we'll be there. So we uh, we had already like we had already booked a little bit of time on Warped in this like janky non-stage stage uh, that we like built in our backyard with a friend. It was under a 10 by 10 tent. So we were going to do that and then go do those Goldfinger shows. We did that and impressed him like right out of the gate. They added us on another week, I think. And then by the end of all of it, it ended up being a couple weeks with them. He wanted to take us to Maverick to showcase because he was doing A&R for Maverick Records at the time. Um, and it all kind of like fell in place from there, from a damn VHS tape that we just like forced upon them, you know? But but you, you just nailed it. So that's exactly what I wanted to get you to say. The two things, man, the two things when people tell me like, oh, I want to be a YouTuber or maybe like a musician or whatever in the creative field, it takes two things, in my opinion. That's the grind mm -hmm. and the risk. And you guys yeah. took that, man. You guys you guys did it. And, and, and doing those two things and never giving up. I mean, sure, like there's there's been times where I've given up or I've thought about giving up, and I'm sure you guys have felt that too. But really, just like putting in the hard work, you know, maybe like you don't see things succeeding, but like keep driving forward and taking that risk, talking to people that other people would not go up to like John Feldman or like yeah. me going up to like um, nutrition conferences and like going up to a doctor and being like, hey, do you want to interview sometime? Like, you know what I mean? It's it's all about that. And I fucking love it, man. That's awesome. Just got to like go for it. Get out of your comfort zone sometimes. And just do the shit that you know if you look back 10 years from that point. And uh, if you hadn't done it, you would you would regret it. Just do, just do that thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we, we, we all don't have necessarily like the resources or the opportunities to do everything all the time, you know, for working a full-time job or this or that. But like in those moments where it's like, ah, I don't know if I should try that. Just fucking try that. Just yeah. do it. 100%. Yeah. Just, just freaking do it. What are you going to lose? You know? Yeah. Um, so no, so, so with all that and, and knowing what you know now, how would you approach story differently if you were like just starting into it again? I think we would be just as like 100% about it, just as reckless. We would just use, we'd use our, the, the resources that are here now, which happen to be different merely because of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Instead of making a full DVD, we would have a YouTube channel. We right. would have, you know, we'd have all those weird-ass videos on our Instagram and everything else. I think we would do all the same stuff. The medium would just be different, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's exactly right. I don't think anything would change in the content, I'm sure. But it's, it's the mediums that change over time, right? It's, it's yeah. how you get that content to the people. I, I know I'm saying content, but it's getting that music, that video to that, you know, viewer, in just a different way. Um, very interesting, man. Uh, yeah, dude, you totally, you guys should totally do more YouTube or, or even yourself. You should, like, I always try to get people to do YouTube. Like, you should do a, a YouTube channel just for yourself, too. Like, you have so much content. Like, you're a great filmmaker. Um, well, actually, talk a little bit about that because, like, you wore a basis and you learned filmmaking, like, on the way. And you've yeah. even worked with, uh, 
with Joe Hahn side by side, right? Like yeah. on music videos from Lincoln Park. Talk a little bit about that and how you got into filmmaking. Yeah. Um, on the YouTube level, like that's in the works. It's stuff I've been thinking about for a long time, but it's just a matter of like doing it. Cause I feel like, you know, if I was just a dude that didn't have any fan base already built in, I would just like start doing it. It could suck at the beginning and we get better later. But I feel like coming out of the gate, I want to want to make it good right out of the gate. So I just, a lot of procrastination and then also working full time puts oh. that shit. Uh, yeah, I know part. how that is. But, uh, but it's in the it's in the works. Uh, but like on a filmmaking level, I I grew up like loving movies uh, more than anything. You know what I mean? Like before before I was super into music, I was a little kid with a lightsaber or like you know an Indiana Jones hat, like just loving storytelling that would take me somewhere magical or somewhere just different, you know? Um, and between like Star Wars, um, The Matrix, Back to the Future, I think Boogie Nights later in life, like those are like my milestone kind of films that made me just like think like, holy shit, I didn't know you could make a movie like this. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So they really, really resonated with me. I have like more nostalgia for for films and like movie scores than anything else from like my childhood. Um, and then in high school, I I took a class. It was called Advanced Communications, which was a bullshit name that the teacher made up so he could have a movie class. Uh, so I learned about film in a much deeper sense there. And uh, I wrote this. Actually, I did this presentation on a on the movie, uh, the film. 12 Monkeys, Bruce Willis, um, incredible movie. So that was a milestone for me as well. Like really like learning to understand film at a deeper level then made me like a real like film enthusiast at that point, not just a kid who liked cool movies. Um, and then watching the Pantera home videos and shooting home videos myself and kind of the music angle becoming part of it. I really started to learn what you could do with a camera in your hand, whether it's a, a camcorder or then a DSLR and now a phone and then like these cinema cameras that you can buy for a few thousand bucks and make fucking legitimate like pro level movies. Um, all along the way, I'm just like, I could do this. I could make this. We can make a documentary. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you guys were essentially like vloggers before vlogs became a thing. Yeah. Like back in the day, you were just like pointing, shooting yourself, walking around, like showing, you know, the your day and like writing music and all that stuff. Like you guys were doing that way before YouTube. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's why we were releasing DVDs and things like that. And then we did get into a little bit like, you know, some stuff on MySpace or got some little things on YouTube from back in the day. But, um, yeah, it was early days, like you said. Um, and I knew that I knew that I wanted to do more than just that. I always said, no matter what, I will make a documentary or film or both at some point. Um, and when it came to making music videos and we were actually, you know, a successful band that could like try to like use a little leverage in talking with a label, um, we got them to 
let us kind of co-direct the sidewalks video with Johan, which in hindsight, I realized we didn't know shit yet at that point. You know what I mean? We were like, we were noobs, but we were enthusiastic and we wanted to learn so much. And I was studying film. I was reading every book I could get my hands on about film and buying, uh, you know, the director's reels of all, all the, uh, there's like a, a series of, of video directors, um, uh, Michelle Gondry and, um, forget, forget who all the names were, but either way, buying a series of, uh, like director's reels, just like studying the shit out of that. So I made this video with Johan that was not great, but I learned a lot. Like we were in the presence of those like professional shoots and like learning about production, learning about like real ways to do things. And then when it came to the second album, we started working with Ryan Smith, director of Until the Day I Die. Until the Day I Die, actually, we got back with him and just broke down right away. We, we actually didn't connect very well on Until the Day I Die. I think we were just kind of, Ryan and I were just kind of arrogant little idiots and we just didn't, <laughs> didn't bro down with him, but connected really well on the Take Me Back video um, from the second album. And we're like really closely involved in writing that and just like we had a lot of input he loved to bring in you know band input and not just like shoulder everything himself so he would take all that and just like as a filmmaker make it happen and we created this some awesome shit and then he ended up doing the antidote as well um we did i'm alive with him in nashville uh so like that dude's been a, a huge mentor to me and um kind of gave us some advice during the documentary process as well. And I took, I mean, we still, we, we text on a regular basis and I'll send him little things that I've done or, you know, we'll just complain about Michael Bay via text, you know, like whatever it is, like, um, that's a long answer. Um, <laughs> well, let me, let me follow up with that. So do you think as creators now, the way the world is heading, do you think it's more important for people to wear multiple hats to learn more skills instead of being just this person and then having somebody else do this for you? Without a doubt. Like, I think in every career path, like if you're an adult, you need to be sort of a renaissance person. Like we're moving closer and closer to this like full shift into this sort of like gig economy. It's no longer thing where you go to school for something and then you get that job and you work for the same company for 30 years and then you retire and you get your pension and shit. That's like so rare now that you have to know how to do multiple things. You have to have these like overlapping skill sets. You have to just like figure shit out. Yeah. Go to school when you can, um, when you can afford it or when it makes sense for your career. But like we all have to be learning in whatever way we, we can at all times. And getting stuff done with our own two hands and our own brains, not just because we needed to get it, to get it done, but because it's like, it's enriching and it's good. And it's, I think we get more out of things as humans. If we learn more, if we never stop learning, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we did some of it in the early days out of necessity, but it was only necessary because we wanted it. You know what I mean? It's like, we wanted some kind of video like Pantera, which created a necessity to get cameras and a computer to edit and all that kind of stuff to make it happen and then learn it 
So we did it. It's like, we want this, we're going to figure it out and we're going to make it happen. And that, that, that one additional hat made us successful. Like if we didn't know how to edit videos and we didn't, we weren't doing that weird jackass shit, we wouldn't have had that VHS tape to give to John Feldman. So we couldn't just be good at instruments. Just like right now, you can't just be good. You can't even just be good at video and, um, graphic design and music you need to also be good at social media and like connecting with people and you know maybe sponsorship shit too whatever it is yeah. you need to like connect all the dots so i mean we're all like especially in a band you've got three four five people you've got enough people to kind of like cover all the bases until you get big enough that you can hand off those jobs to somebody else you know That's somebody can know finance, somebody can know social media, somebody can know filmmaking, photography, whatever. So do that. Take on those roles. You know what I mean? It only enhances and enriches the other creative parts of your life. You know, it helps you kind of get better perspective on things when you when you don't have such a narrow focus, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it also gives you more power, more leverage and kind of keeps more people out of your pockets, essentially, and keeps you going. I think that's that's really smart that you guys are learning more skills and that you guys, you guys aren't even with a label anymore, right? You right. guys are independent. Yeah. So that's, that's super cool. Um, the bonus song off of the black swan, never let it go, which, which is my favorite song ever, dude. Um, oh, wow. that, that and take me back both of those two songs, uh, never let it go. Is it, is it about like kind of the struggles of success, like just everything that you've guys experienced as a band? Is it about music? Straight up. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. Like the way I'm interpreting that for myself, is kind of like what I've been doing, like trying to break out and trying to be, trying to influence people in like a certain way, like for health and like veganism, like it, it's the adventure. You know what I mean? Um, freaking love that song are do you guys ever think you're gonna play that live we might i mean like we've been we've we've been thinking about creative types of shows to do since we don't really tour anymore for real uh instead of just doing like one home show every year and a handful of others just like doing maybe like a whole album or like a fully just by request style um thing and in that case that could end up in a set, yeah. I mean, if enough people vote for it and we do that kind of thing, yeah. Oh, dude, I mean, that's... it's a great song. I would love to play it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Ryan's solo, man, is, is sick. Yeah, I would love to hear that song live. Um, very cool, man. Uh, I think people would uh, definitely get on me if I didn't ask about new music. Is there any updates? Are you guys working on new stuff? Ryan is always writing, all the time. He's got a ton of songs. Um, so... We'll see how it all shakes out. Um, I don't. I don't see this band ever not making music, ever like fully stopping. You know, we had quite a hiatus for a while, and the dudes made an album while I was away. Um, because we can't not make stuff. You know what I mean? We can't not create music and art. So, um, and I don't want to say anything like definitively, but yeah, Ryan being the primary songwriter for Story of the Year does have songs just coming out of his ass oh. and they're awesome so that, that's awesome man do you think something you're looking at maybe 2020 yeah we'll see um there's definitely talks right awesome very cool man 
Well, um, yeah, that's that's everything I had for you, Adam. Um, anything you want to kind of get any final thoughts out? Anything you wanted to share? Um, watch The Game Changers on Netflix. Fucking love that. Um, so good. Uh, watch Okja on Netflix also. Did you watch that one? I haven't, no, but I know there's like some uh, vegan message behind it, isn't it? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's a great film, like regardless, um, that kind of like fell back into the, you know, the abyss of like endless Netflix content after they released it. It's been a couple years now. That's a great one. Uh, check out, um, the Jordan Phoenix podcast, friend of mine. Uh, you mentioned earlier the podcast. Yeah, that was awesome. On recently with him and, uh, today an episode with Porter McKnight from, uh, Atreyu just went up. I was on that one as well. Check that out. Um, we also just released on, on all of our social, social media stuff. Um, we did this John Williams thing. John Williams came and conducted the St. Louis symphony. Recently, we, uh, went and shot a bunch of video there. I asked, I kind of interviewed fans in line and just, you know, shared the experience, talked about how his music has influenced our lives, talked about being excited for the show, whatever. It was just cool. like kind of connection piece. So for, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but for the people that don't know, he's the, he makes the music for Star Wars, correct? Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, composer who did Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T., uh, Jaws, um, Home Alone, Harry Potter, like Superman, like all the best shit. That's John Williams. Like he's my favorite musician of all time. And seeing him conduct the symphony and getting to hang out a little bit like beforehand and like get a little inside vibe there was amazing. My wife and I and uh, a good friend good friend of mine who has this amazing Boba Fett costume, actually. He's in the 501st. Uh, uh, it's like this costume group, nonprofit thing for Star Wars. Um, we went and got to see this show, a show that sold out in like 20 minutes. So uh, it was, we were super lucky to get tickets and it was an incredible night full of nostalgia and all the emotions. So we got this cool little video series, check that out, um, at Adam the Skull on Instagram, Twitter, and all the stuff. Holler at me. Yeah, and I'll have that all the information down in the description. So definitely connect with Adam, connect with Story of the Year, and all the work that they're doing. And uh, dude, are, are you excited for the Rise of Skywalker? That's oh, coming, dude. That's, that's soon. That's coming up, yeah. man. Super it's uh, less than a month now. Yeah, I got goosebumps <laughs> uh, oh, talking about it, man. <laughs> yeah, and The Mandalorian right now, I'm just like, Star Wars heaven. Oh, do you have Disney Plus? Yeah, shit, yeah. Oh, dude, I got to get that, man. Yeah, I want to watch that show real bad. It's really good. And there's a bunch of other, I mean, there's so much content on Disney Plus. It's like, it's an insane deal for five bucks a month, dude. Yeah. I like all the new stuff that they're making and the back catalog is like, duh, take my money. Is Marvel on it too? Because they yeah. own that. Yep. Yeah, very interesting. Awesome. Extensive. Sick, man. Well, uh, it was an honor. And a uh, privilege to talk with you, man. It was great having you on the show. And definitely feel free to come back on uh, whenever, whenever you're up for it. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. One life, one chance, right? <laughs> so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of This Is Bananas. To learn more about this episode, check out the show notes 
over at bananiac.com. That's B-A-N-A-N-I-A-C.com. If you're looking for easy and nutritious plant-based recipes to make at home, you can download my ebook, Bananiac Simple Vegan Recipes, from my website as well. It includes 25 of my favorite whole food plant-based recipes that I make and eat every day and will hopefully help you eat more whole plant-based meals as well. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please rate it wherever you're listening to it. Share this episode with someone who could benefit from it. Leave a comment with your thoughts and subscribe to This Is Bananas as well as my YouTube channel, Bananiac, which you can find at youtube.com slash Bananiac. This helps me become more discoverable and ultimately reach more people with my work. If you'd like to donate, please visit patreon.com slash Bananiac. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast and supporting the one man band that I am. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourself, spread the word, and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace.